Welcome to another life-impacting message from City Light Church. You can find more great content like this online at citylight.church. Good to see you all. Um, I'm Simon, uh, affectionately known as Jacko, and uh, I'm preaching tonight. And uh, as we continue in our series, Unstoppable, how God used the church to change or uses the church to change the world as we continue on through Acts. We're in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 through to 8 tonight. Um, before we open up God's Word, uh, I just, many of you, I'm sure, I'd be surprised if no one's aware and impacted by the events that took place in Christchurch, New Zealand on Friday, uh, the many lives that were lost at the hands of, um, seems like, one person and who was motivated by a really unhealthy uh, ideology and, uh, yeah, I've sort of been examining myself and talking to a bunch of people, sort of feeling how people have been feeling about that. Some people sort of deeply affected. We have people across the City Light family of churches who are from New Zealand and um, even from Christchurch itself, um, to others who are totally aware of it um, but are sort of wrestling with feelings, um, perhaps not as deeply as those. But on Saturday morning, uh, one of the things, one of the texts of scripture that came to my mind was Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, as I was just thinking through um, the events. And uh, the word of the Lord reminds us of this God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him male and female. He created them. And uh, the scriptures, um, this is in creation, remind us of that God created each one of us, male and female, um, right across the globe. And in making us in his image, he instilled in each one of us dignity as human beings, value and worth, um, irrespective of your religious background, your ethnicity, um, your, your colour, and it's one of the profoundly beautiful things about the Christian faith and the biblical worldview that every single person, young, old, rich, poor, um, from any part of the world, is of great value and dignity. And for someone to believe that they are superior to other people, uh, aka racism, is incongruent with being a follower of Jesus. And as Christians, we... Um, we denounce racism in all of its forms. And um, I think it's important that we say that up the front as a church. Um, having said that, it's not all theological. Um, the loss of life is something that is to be deeply grieved. It's not natural. Um, we were never made to die. Um, and death hurts, and particularly in this way. And uh, so I just think it's appropriate that we just take a moment to pray as the people of God in this place tonight. Um, And I'll pray also as we come before God's word or under his word. So would you bow your heads perhaps with me as we pray for the people um, affected by this tragedy in New Zealand and for us ourselves tonight. Father, we thank you and praise you for your great love for us. We thank you for your scriptures that do point us to Jesus. We thank you, Father, uh, for, yeah, this wonderful truth that we are made by you in your image. And for that very reason, you confer upon each one of us here tonight and across the globe dignity, worth and value. And so it is with heavy hearts that we grieve tonight the the death of these 49 or so people who lost their lives as they went about their daily lives in Christchurch. Father, we pray in particular tonight for 
uh, the men and women and families in that part of the world and probably, probably connected all over the place who are grieving these deaths. We pray tonight for those who are laying injured, um, some very severely injured in, this, in hospitals across Christchurch. Uh, Lord, we pray that you would succour them, you would provide comfort to them. Uh, Father, we pray that the perpetrators of this violence uh, would be brought to justice, uh, that it would be uh, swift and right, uh, the decisions that are made there. Uh, We do pray, Father, for this one particular fellow from Australia who has been at the centre of this crime, that perhaps we pray, Father, we pray that he would find Jesus. Uh, meet Jesus in the middle of this situation. Lord, uh, we, these events make us long for you to return. And so we do together pray, come, Lord Jesus, come. Make all things right. But Father, as we live in this world at this time, help us to be men and women who uh, speak against racism, who act in a way that models that and follows that through. We pray that we would be a church who welcomes all people, no matter their age, their stage, their background, their colour, whatever it might be. We pray that we would be a welcoming church and that we, as your church in this city and around the world, we'd model that to a world that desperately needs this news. So, Father, we pray, make us more like Jesus. And tonight, Father, as we do think about the place of suffering and pain in our lives and how you use that for your good works in the world. We pray that, Father, as we hear your scriptures read and explained, that, Father, you would open our ears, open our eyes, soften our hearts to see, hear and love Jesus. And so, Father, we pray you'd be at work in us tonight. In Jesus' name. Amen. Would you open your Bibles uh, to... Uh, Acts chapter 8, if you have your own Bible, open it up to wherever you find Acts chapter 8. If you are in one of the black Bibles in and around the the seats, it's on page 1704, 1704, and as we continue in this wonderful narrative about God's powerful work by his spirit um, as the kingdom advances across the globe. Acts chapter 8, verse 1. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout Judea and Samaria. Godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. But Saul began to destroy the church. Going from house to house, he dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Those, though, who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. Philip went down to a city in Samaria and and proclaimed the Christ there. When the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, and many paralytics and cripples were healed. So there was great joy in that city. The passage that we've just read, uh, that little sort of snapshot, those eight verses or so, um, I think is a bit distressing, um, a bit dismantling, a bit dismembering. I think it's a bit, it's powerful. I think it's life-giving. It's all of those things all kind of rolled into one, these little verses. 
that come after last week's passage where we saw the first martyr uh, recorded for us, Stephen, killed for his following of Jesus. But I want to start and I want to ask you a question. Um, when was, um, when was, or was there ever a time in your life where something sort of so major kind of happened in your life that you could sort of divide your life into, well, that was my life before X happened, and now this is my life now after that happened. Does that make sense? Um, can you divide, is there a moment, a major event in your life? I want to give you 33.5 seconds to talk to the person next to you. Um, feel free, you don't have to share. This is, I'm not forcing you to share. But maybe have a quick chat to the person next to you. Was there a moment in your life, a major event that took place where you can divide your life into before that happened and now after that happened? Have a quick go, 33.5 seconds, you know, feel free to share. All right, I'll bring you back together. I won't, I won't ask you to share those things kind of publicly. Um, but, you know, like, what was it? You know, like, uh, perhaps there's, you know, there's an accident that took place in your life and you can say, my life was like this before the accident, now it's like this after the accident. If you're, maybe it was uh, before... Uh, the divorce after the divorce. Uh, maybe it's before the global financial crisis of 2008, after the global financial crisis of 2008, um, before the diagnosis, after the diagnosis. Um, perhaps for many people now in parts of our world, it's you know before the terrorist attacks on the mosques in Christchurch, after those awful attacks on the mosques. Perhaps for you, it's before... My life was like this before I met Jesus, and now after I met Jesus, it's now. That was the defining moment. Perhaps that's you. Something so disruptive in your life that you can go, that was a defining kind of episode. That was a defining event, a watershed moment. Life like this before, life like that after. For several weeks now, right, we've been in the book of Acts. We've been watching as followers of Jesus are, are forming, being formed into this new thing called the church, and this movement's kind of going all over the place in throughout Jerusalem as people are formed through faith in Jesus after Jesus' crucifixion, his resurrection and ascension. We've been watching them over the past weeks um, growing and thriving and flourishing and facing some challenges but rising above them in the power of the Spirit. It's been really great. But tonight, I don't know if you notice in those verses, tonight they kind of get scattered. They get sort of disrupted. And I wonder if you ask this kind of large group of people meeting in Jerusalem back in the first century, you know, what was the defining moment in your life that, you know, as a church, I reckon they would say life was like this before the killing of Stephen, and then this was what it was like after the killing of Stephen. Stephen, who we explored his life, uh, Tyler opened up the passage last week, we looked at his life, he was the first Christian martyr that we know of, um, the first person to be executed in this new movement of Jesus. And now, after his death, it's basically become legal to harass, to threaten, even to kind of kill followers of Jesus. Have a look with me. Chapter 8, verse 1. That day, a severe persecution began against the church in Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered throughout the countryside of Judea and Samaria. And you've got to note there, it's like the adjective, right? This was a great persecution. That's severe intense. And you also note that the church in Jerusalem, that word church, we're not talking about a building, right? Church buildings didn't become part of the life of Christianity for many centuries. What we're talking about here is persecution of a group of people, the church. 
severe persecution of people. All but the apostles fled to two areas. Where did they go? See, this church, right, is dismantles, it's disrupted, it's dismembered. Whatever they had together in Jerusalem, it's like, quick, grab the kids, pack some suitcases and jump in the Commodore. We've got to get out of here, right? It's full on. I mean, people are fleeing, Christians are fleeing Jerusalem like we would flee a house on fire. Great persecution. People flee to where? Judea and to Samaria. This is Acts 8. If you press the rewind button at this point and go back to chapter 1, you get the kind of before, then the after. Acts, right, this book that we've been tracking through, studying now, records the actions of Jesus' disciples after he leaves to go to be at the right hand of God. But in the opening verses of the book of Acts, we get Jesus' kind of post-resurrection appearances and the things that he said to his followers. And so he says initially, stay in Jerusalem, uh, chapter 1, verse 8, you'll see it on the screen. You'll receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The powerful Holy Spirit that God promised long ago has come upon his people. It's been given. And where do we see now God at work? God is at work around people in various places and through his people, allowing them to speak boldly in the name of Jesus. He says, don't go anywhere until I've given you the power to be my witnesses in all of the world. Beginning in Jerusalem, into Judea, then to Samaria, and to Adelaide, to the ends of the earth. And when we see God's power at work, right, all the way through, like Acts chapter 1, how many disciples are there sitting in Jerusalem? Probably about 120. Jump into Acts chapter 2, we now have about 3,000 people now following Jesus in Jerusalem. Flick forward to Acts chapter 6, probably about 15,000 people in the church. You know, and these guys and girls in downtown Jerusalem, they're not just doing church together on a Sunday. They're living radically different Jesus-shaped lives that are noticeable, impacting all the people around them and, and themselves. Like, you know, we've read already, like they're selling houses and land that they owned and they're delivering the money, the proceeds of those sales to the apostles' feet to be distributed to members of this church, members from you know, Jewish people and Greek people, now calling on the name of Jesus as their Lord and Saviour. And no one has any needs. Everyone's cared for. It's phenomenal. You know, yeah, absolutely. These people had biological families, you know, physical biological families. But now they're part of a spiritual family. It's transformed their lives. You arrive in chapter 6, verses 1 to 7. The apostles, they're teaching and preaching the good news, but they're also desperately trying to care for the needs, the physical needs of this massive church. They can't pull off that miracle, right? Doing it all. So they then assign seven men to oversee the waiting on tables and that sort of physical needs ministry. Men under the control of God's grace, under the control of God's spirit, his wisdom and the Holy Spirit. They're caring for the needy, they're waiting on tables. And among these seven are two guys, Stephen and Philip. Stephen, right, when he's not waiting on tables, he's in the synagogue, what's he doing? Proclaiming the gospel, teaching the word of God in Jerusalem, the city that killed and hated Jesus. He's back there and the same people who killed and hate Jesus are now hating him and hating the church that he represents. They don't like this growing movement. Yet, the church grows and grows and grows. 
There's growing hatred of the church, but alongside that is this growing conversion, people's lives being turned upside down. And in the midst of it, right, I grabbed this from the little atrium thing outside there, in the midst of it, Stephen is killed as an angry mob hurls rocks at his head and his body. This is, as far as we know, right, that his death didn't come as they got a pile of little gravel rocks and sort of pelted them at him and he just sort of caved in. We're talking rocks like this. One after the other after the other, it smashed into his skull, smashed into his body until there was no life left in him. And yet what is he saying right at the end? Basically the words of Jesus, forgive these guys. And yet on that same day, Acts chapter 8 verse 1, what happens? A persecution starts. Jesus' people are scattered to where? Judea and to Samaria, anywhere but Jerusalem. This is amazing. To Samaria. I don't know if you know anything about the history between the the Jews and the people who lived in Samaria. Uh, There was bad blood between the Jews and the Samaritans for at least like 900 years. They hated each other. A civil war, right, meant that the Samaritans were exiled to the northern kingdom but it's such later, like the, the northerners, they said, we want to come back into the land, we want to come back down south where, the, where Judah was, and yet the, Jude, the people in Judah went, well, no, but you've been up there in the north and you've been hanging out with other cultures, you're contaminated, you're not pure like us, and so we don't want you back. And so there was this massive hostility. There's a map, I think, coming up on the screen. Um, oh, keep going. Keep going. There, there we go, that's the one. Um, there's, there's the kind of, there's the situation, right? Galilee in the north, Samaria, fractionally down south, and then Judea. So it's Jerusalem's in Judea. We're, we're told, right, you might have heard this before, but the, the Jews in Judea and in Jerusalem loathed the Samaritans so much that if you wanted to get up north to Galilee, you'd never set foot in the land of Samaria. Oh, that was bad news. That was dirty. That was unclean. So you would take the long way around. So much did they not like each other that they would do that. And yet when you turn open the pages of the gospel, Jesus, the true human, the true Israelite, the the true Jew, what's he doing? He's hanging out with Samaritans. So there's the Samaritan woman at the well whom Jesus just walks up to and and greets and, and she's like, what are you doing? You're a Jew. And Jesus drinks with her and she's overwhelmed. Jesus crosses these cultural barrels. You know the good Samaritan story? Who's the one who comes to help the person who's been almost bashed to death? It's it's a Samaritan. It's controversial. Scenario, where else does that come up? Hold that that thought. Have a look at Acts chapter 8, verse 2. Devout men buried Stephen and made loud lamentation over him. But verse 3, Saul was ravaging the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. Really briefly there in verse 2, um, I think sometimes we can read Acts and we can, we can remember the, the death of Stephen and, and kind of go, wow, what a guy, you know, wow, he just stood up for Jesus right to the very end, bam, and then we just move on. Move on. Um, I think this is a good reminder of the, the impact of Stephen's death and the impact it had on this community. They lamented and they mourned for him. They grieved his death, which is right to do. At great cost, no doubt, they, they, they got his body, they identified themselves with Stephen. I mean, that's a big thing to do in this moment. So loved was he as part of this community, they risked their own lives to get his body and to bury it properly and to mourn him. 
It's a beautiful moment. But verse 3, Paul, Saul, sorry, ravaged the church by entering house after house, dragging off both men and women. He committed them to prison. I mean, Paul is, Saul is on this journey of absolutely systematically destroying the church. He's going from house to house, not just dragging out the men, but dragging out the men and the women. He's on this like mission of search and destroy. The word ravage in the original language literally means a brutal and sadistic cruelty. This is not just any kind of persecution. This is, this is of, of Satan. Saul has blood on his hands. But have a look at verse 4. Now those, though, who were scattered went from place to place proclaiming the word. I kind of like that parallelism, right? Saul's going from house to house, dragging people off, and yet God's people, as they're scattered because of this persecution, they're going from place to place, preaching the good news. It's extraordinary. They're, they're going into Judea, into Samaria, these scattered people. And what are they doing as they get scattered? They're proclaiming the message of Jesus wherever they go. They're sharing the good news. We believe that Jesus came for us. We believe that Jesus in him is life. We believe Jesus is the true hope, life everlasting, lasting peace, that his death covers all of our sins, past, present, and future. We, you've got to know this Jesus everywhere they go. He's a free gift. They carried that message wherever they went. You know, Stephen, right, one of the seven, he dies. Another member of that seven was Philip. We meet him in verse 5, Acts chapter 8, verse 5. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed who? The Messiah to him. That the promised one has come, the Christ. Where does Philip preach? Can you say it with me? I didn't hear. Samaria, Samaria yeah. He goes into Samaria. Acts 8, 6, the crowds with one accord listened eagerly to what was said by Philip, hearing and seeing the signs that he did. For unclean spirits crying with loud shrieks came out of many who were possessed, and many others who were paralyzed or lame were cured. So what? There was great joy in that city. They prayed earlier, the apostles, that as they advance the kingdom, as they preach the good news, that their preaching would be accompanied by signs and wonders. Here again, we see an answer to that prayer as Philip proclaims the good news, and we see signs and wonders. And the result, verse 8, there was great joy in that city. Drop down with me to Acts chapter 8, verse 12. I'm stealing someone's thunder from next week, but that's okay, you know. What's he doing? He's preaching the good news. There's joy in that city. And as he's preaching, verse 12, they believed Philip who was proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptised, both men and women. It's a great reminder, right? We, we, I think it's worth just pausing here for a minute and reflecting on exactly what Philip's proclaiming to these Samaritans. Um, Luke indicates, right, that he proclaimed two things, the kingdom of God, verse 12, and the name of Jesus Christ. That's the content. And as we might expect, right, in the book of Acts, and Luke's a detailer, so we've got to go, these phrases, right, must be loaded with theological stuff. And it's sure they are. See, the Jews, right, they thought that they alone would be in the kingdom of God, that they were the chosen people and no one else really belonged in the kingdom of God. And yet Philip's proclaiming the arrival of this kingdom to the who? The Samaritans. 
It's massively shocking, massively controversial. But what it reminds us is the good news of the kingdom was that anyone, even the unclean ones up north in Samaria, that they could enter the, good, the kingdom of God through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The name, when you hear the name like that, it's the person and the work of Jesus. Through faith in the person and work of Jesus, they too, even the Samaritans, could be part of this kingdom of God. Philip made it really clear, right, that union with Christ, not ethnic identity, colour, race, family lineage, but union with Christ through faith in his work and his person is the gateway to the kingdom of God. And his message, right, verse 8, was received with joy. It's a reminder to you and me, right, as we live in Adelaide and as we proclaim the good news of Jesus to our family members, to our work colleagues, to the people who run the shops nearby, our houses, wherever we might be, wherever the Lord has placed us, it's a reminder that no one, no one is beyond the reach of the gospel. We see this again and again and again in the book of Acts. Why? Because I reckon, if you're like me, I'm, I'm pretty good at forgetting that. That the gospel is for everyone, everywhere, all the time. That's what we get reminded of in the book of Acts. I think we get it reminded of it all the way through the New Testament. This good news is not just for particular people in a particular time and place. It's for all people. The gospel doesn't call us to be kind of clean and sinless and worthy before we come to Christ. The very gospel that we proclaim is for the unworthy, the unclean, all who are far from God, and they can be changed by that. It reminds me of when um, I met, I'm married to a woman named Adele, um, if you don't know that, and uh, one of Adele's brothers was quite a senior figure in one of the massive um, hardcore bikey gangs, in Adelaide, if you meet Adele, you're going, how is that kind of possible, right? Like, you know. But uh, yeah, um, one of Adele's brothers was basically second in charge of one of the big Adelaide gypsy, uh, it was the Gypsy Jokers. And uh, he died tragically at home. Um, he just had a heart attack. And um, yeah, I was, as we were kind of pulling together a service, a funeral service for him, um, I put my hand up and said, yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say a few words about Jesus. I'll proclaim the gospel. And uh, as far as we know, Adele's brother wasn't a follower of Jesus, but he was an opportunity to proclaim the good news of the resurrection hope of the gospel. And I didn't know this at the time, just how tight the Gypsy Joker Motorcycle Club is nationally. And so the, um, the funeral was held in a northern suburb of Adelaide at a funeral home. About 250 people were kind of, could fit into the, the main sort of chapel auditorium. Um, the car park was filled with a, over 1,000 Gypsy Joker motorcyclists from across Australia. Um, leather everywhere, all right, and Harleys, you know. And uh, I remember kind of like I could almost feel my knees knocking, right? I'm, I'm proclaiming the good news in the chapel to 250. Meanwhile, it's beamed onto big screens out into the car park. And uh, I think God, God laid on my heart at that point, like, you know, like the gospel's for everyone, right? Just preach it, proclaim it. And uh, I was standing beside the gravesite uh, where Wayne was buried and everyone, everyone gets invited to sort of kick a bit of dirt 
or you know, throw a bit of dirt into the, to the, into the hole. So I did that, and I'm standing there, and next to me comes up this, like, you know, I don't know, when I picture bikies, I think of men about 10 foot tall, six foot wide, no hair, beard, you know, hardcore, they probably could kill me, and this guy walked up to me, I was going to say about the size of Andrew Tran, but that's, that's not very nice. But I picture, picture that, right? No, like, not a very tall man stands next to me um, with not very much hair, this long goatee beard and a massive rat's tail and a kind of leather kind of, you know, little um, vest and blah, blah, And he goes, good message, mate. And I'm like, I'm like, oh, thanks, you know? I'm like, oh, what's your name? Steve. I'm like, all right, you knew Wayne? Yeah, I knew, I knew Wayne. I'm like... So you're part of this club? Yeah, I'm, I'm the president nationally. And I'm like, whoa. And I'm standing next to a big hole. Like, where I'm thinking, you could do some damage to me right now. And we had this, actually, it was profound. We had this, I don't know if he came to faith that day. He didn't sort of drop to his knees and profess faith in Christ. We had a wonderful conversation about Jesus. And here I am at the beginning of the day going, I can't do this. I can't preach the gospel. These guys are going to kill me. And look how far away the things that I knew they get up to. And yet, that's a reminder here, right, that no one is too far from the good news. And I pray for him that he would come to know Jesus. Um, it's a reminder uh, for you and for me. I don't know. Uh, are you following this? It's, it's a wonderful moment. Stephen is executed for preaching Jesus. On that same day, a great persecution breaks out against the church. People, all except the apostles, are scattered to Judea and to Samaria. And they travel, and then they travel back, though, to the original mission of Jesus. Acts chapter 1, verse 8. You'll receive power and the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Phase 1 of the mission takes place in Jerusalem. Phase 2 of the mission, Judea and Samaria. It's interesting. I like this little play on numbers. Acts 1, 8. And then here we have 8, 1 as this new phase kind of kicks in. The question I ask though is, what was it? that ushered into the mission into phase two? Persecution. That's the answer. Philip persecuted into Samaria. Philip disrupted into Samaria. You know, something awful, right, leads to the effectiveness of the mission. And, you know, when I, when I come up with that, when I think about this, this bothers me, right, that it's through great pain and persecution that the mission goes forward. And I'm like, I don't like the sound of that very much. That bothers me. Saul is going from house to house, arresting people, causing great pain. God's ordinary people end up scattered into Samaria, proclaiming the good news of Jesus with great effectiveness. What if great pain is the seed required to gain great effectiveness? What drives Christians into new frontiers of pioneering mission, you know, strategic planning meetings? No. You know, oh, we're here in Jerusalem, we've reached 15,000 people, let's keep going. No. What drives God's people here into Judea and into Samaria is great pain, the pain of persecution. They're a refugee congregation, taking Jesus with them wherever they fled. That's true, right? A season of great pain can often result in great effectiveness. God sometimes plants great pain in order to reap a harvest in our lives in the bigger picture. You know, Philip, right, he's a pioneer missionary. 
First, he, he goes and does kind of mass-scale evangelism in Samaria, preaching to the crowds, and then second, we'll meet him leading an African man to Christ through a really deep-hearted Bible study. In both cases, it's the same message, the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it's the same response, belief and baptism, and it's the same result, joy, unspeakable joy. But it's great pain that results in great spiritual kind of change and effectiveness. And there are examples of this throughout the history of the church. Um, you know, right here, Acts chapter 8, we've got it, the early church. You know, wind forward to the reformers in the 1500s, Luther, Latimer, Ridley, a whole bunch of these men and women who, who laid their lives literally on the line so that you and I could have the Bible that we have before us in the English language that we can read. It cost a lot of pain in order to be we could have these things. You know, and then you wind for it a bit more, like Bonhoeffer, the great Dietrich Bonhoeffer of the 20th century and millions of Christians in our world today where they're suffering deeply and yet seeing lives transformed around them. I was at the Open Doors event. Anyone go to that, the Open Doors event on Thursday night in the city? Uh, Open Doors, an organisation, I love, I love Open Doors, they're a great organisation, who are seeking to get alongside the persecuted church around the world in order to not just um, pray for them at a distance, but I think actually to engage the church like us in the West with the reality of life in the persecuted church and calling upon us to not just pray but to give financially so that the word of God can go into these really hard-to-reach places and also we can encourage our brothers and sisters right on those front lines of persecution. I think I was told that night, 245 million of our brothers and sisters in Christ, part of our spiritual family, face severe persecution every day in about 70 countries around the world. It's, it's huge. Stories, examples of how God uses great pain for great spiritual effectiveness throughout history. Um, here's a photo on the screen. Here's a story for you. Um, Recognise any of these fellas? Anyone recognise the guy on the left of the picture? Robert? President Richard Nixon. Yeah, so that was Nixon, the guy who's got the funny red circle around him. Um, no, that's a guy named Chuck Colson, right? So this is um, President um, Nixon um, and Chuck Colson. Chuck Colson died in 2012. He was about 80 years old. Um, he was a lawyer, partner in a massive law firm in the United States, um, and then he found himself as the chief counsel to the president of the United States. That's like the personal lawyer of the US president. Um, but then enter Vietnam War, um, enter a divided country, enter the Watergate scandal, and everything blew up, and Colson was charged with obstruction of justice. Um, he resigned his position, he went back to his law firm. One of his clients in that law firm was, um, owned one of the biggest companies in Massachusetts, really massive employer of people. Um, and the chairman of that company was an, a guy named Tom Phillips. Um, Colson heard that Phillips had had a deep religious experience, and people described this guy Tom Phillips as like an intense kind of guy. Anyway, Colson, one evening, went to, was invited to Phillips's house. They're standing on the porch in the dark, and, and Phillips pulls out a book and begins to read from this book to Chuck Colson. He pulled out, from, uh, pulled out Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. Uh, as he was reading, Phillips read from the chapter called The Great Sin. What would you say is The Great Sin, if you were to write a book? Uh, for C.S. Lewis, it was Pride. 
was arrogance. And Colson, right, as, as, as Phillips is reading this book, he's having this meltdown, right? He's breaking down on the porch, tears running down his face. He's moved, he's overwhelmed. Because right, for Lewis, right, the pride is this great anti-God stance, right? You know, it's me, I'm, I'm God, you know, you're not. And leading to arrogance. And Colson was cut to the heart. He realised just how arrogant he was. Colson was known in inverted commas as the hatchet man. He would just go around and he was just appalling the way he treated people. Um, in the midst of this moment, like on this porch in the dark, Colson gave his life to Jesus. He was born again. Rant, incredible. So in the background, right, he's been charged with obstruction of justice. He's on the porch. He's just given his life to Jesus in this, you know, like amazing moment. And yet the media in the US went, rubbish. That's not true. It's a ploy. It's a ploy. He's claiming to be a born-again Christian so he can get a lighter sentence. You know, that's pretty much what the media said. But Colson, as far as we know, really had had an experience with the crucified and risen Lord Jesus. After some time, Colson was tried and found guilty and spent seven months in an Alabama prison. Apparently, when he was released, um, because he'd been eating prison food all day, no choice of what to have, he went to a restaurant and couldn't really work out what to order, didn't know what to do. Um... But after his time in prison, Colson then established what is known as Prison Fellowship, a movement worldwide in 110 countries with over 14,000 volunteers. And the Prison Fellowship Ministry seeks to... I think there's a photo of him. There he is. Um, what Prison Fellowship does is it goes into prisons and, and cares for the needs of inmates, shares the good news with inmates, looks after the families of inmates, and when they are released, they do all they can to help these men, particularly, kind of re-establish their lives in community and hope they never go back to prison again. Again, the media, right, thought this was a ploy. But you know what? Prison Fellowship has lasted for over 40 years, has impacted under the, God, under the grace of God, thousands of, of prisoners, past, present, and we hope it will continue to do that even today. You know, out of deep humiliation for Colson and pain has come a ministry that's changed many lives. Because sometimes deep spiritual effectiveness comes out of pain and difficulty. I reckon if you ask Chuck Colson you know, the before-after question, I reckon he'd say, you know, before I was charged, after I was released. Before I met Tom on the porch that day, after I met Tom on the porch that day. We're part of here at church, uh, at City Light North Adelaide, part of the Acts 29 movement, a global church planting movement, seeking to plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. One of the things I love about Acts 29, you might not have heard about this, is that we have uh, a ministry stream running off Acts 29 called Church in Hard Places. Um, we've also got a, a rural collective where we're seeking to take the good news of Jesus into rural places. The guy who oversees Church in Hard Places is a guy named Mez McConnell. Anyone heard of Mez? Um, we don't really know what Mez's background is, like what hardcore crimes he's committed and time he's spent behind bars. Um, he was meant to be speaking at the recent Gold Coast Conference, but he couldn't get a visa into Australia. Um, we don't know what was going down there. But, but Mez is just this man, right, who's had some really hard experiences, largely at his own kind of, you know, silliness, I guess you could say. But he's met the Lord Jesus, and now he's, through those hard experiences, he's now seeking to well, promote the gospel in places which are really hard to reach, where most evangelical Christians like you and I would never go. And there's just people just catching the vision all over the place. 
reaching people in in hard-to-reach places in Australia and around the world, slums, ghettos, housing commission suburbs, people committing lives long-term to reach these people. Out of great pain can come great spiritual effectiveness. I want you to look at the screen, have a look at something. It's a good story. There's a true story of a small village in India. And in this village, there was this family that came to a saving faith in Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. This agitated the village so much and everybody became so upset that an angry mob gathered and shoved them into the public square. The village chief confronted them and he said to the man, if you and your family will not recant your faith, you all will surely die. The man didn't know what to say or what to do. And so the only thing that came to mind for him were the words of a song that he himself had composed when he had first surrendered his life to God. And so he began to sing, I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. And with that, horrifically, His children were killed. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. No turning back. He was given another chance, this time with his wife's life on the line, and yet he continued to sing, though none go with me, still I will follow, no turning back, no turning back. Though none go with me, still I will follow. After her tragic death, he was given one final opportunity, this time to save himself. And yet he continued to sing. Even though that man and his family died on that day, 
something remarkable happened. A seed was planted in the heart of that village chief, a seed that began to grow over time and eventually he called the community together in that very same neighborhood, in that very same square. And he renounced his former faith and declared his allegiance to Jesus Christ. And a celebration broke out in that moment and the gospel began to flourish and to grow in that community, not just in that village, but across the whole region. Because they had seen real faith and they knew the true character of God because of a family that believed and sacrificed even under the penalty of death. Pretty amazing. Um, just as we finish, just a couple of thoughts about you know what does this all mean for you, for me, and for us as we think about this idea of you know through great pain comes sort of great spiritual effectiveness. Um, one thing just to really just to highlight really clearly is you know we we notice in this passage that when severe persecution broke out, everyone fled apart from the apostles. Um, the apostles kind of I think we they, we see them staying back in Jerusalem because well that remained sort of the the hub, the centre of operations for the mission at that time as the gospel spread out into Judea and Samaria. But everyone else fled. And I think there's a, I just want to be clear, there's, there's a, a rightness to what they did. Um, they, the fact that we go, oh, why didn't they stay, why didn't they stay, that seems a bit weak, but I think it was right and godly and good that they went. Um, in fear of their lives, they fled. And, and I just want to say tonight, if you're here tonight and... Um, I want to give you permission to flee, not flee from here necessarily, right? But if you're, if you're under persecution, if you're facing pressures which you feel are incongruent with your Christian faith, then you ought to flee. So if you're, you're here tonight and you're in a, a job at work which is calling you to do things which just don't match up with the gospel that you know, causing you to, to make decisions, make moves that are inconsistent with following Jesus, then you ought to go. Um, you know, you want to discern what that is. If you're here tonight and you're in a relationship uh, where you are suffering violence, where you are suffering emotional abuse, you know, it's not like, you know, you've got to grit your teeth and bear it, leave, go. And, and we as a church want to be there for you. I want to be there for you. And so don't remain in that situation. There's a rightness to us, not just going, well, I was told tonight, great pain leaves a great spiritual effectiveness, better stick it out. There's a rightness to going, and then we, we learn that here. But sometimes, uh, great pain does lead to spiritual effectiveness. Often great pain is planted and great effectiveness grows. Um, be clear, though, tonight's message isn't, you know, if you get hurt, God will use you in a spiritually powerful way, and therefore I'm going to go and seek to get hurt so I can get used in that particular way. The message of hope is that often great spiritual effectiveness comes through great pain. Because round two of the expansion of Jesus' kingdom happens not because of strategic planning, not because of long meetings and things like that, but through severe persecution that sent a people into a refugee-like situation where they were running for their lives. That's how the gospel spreads from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria, because often great effectiveness comes out of great pain. You know, God often does his best work, right, amidst 
our most painful experiences. Often we miss, right, his kind of movement because he shows up in places we don't expect him to. You know, what I often see as setbacks or we can often see as setbacks are actually how the Lord advances his kingdom. You know, we expect to find God in the birth of a child, not in the miscarriage. We expect to find God when, when cancer miraculously goes away, but not when it remains. We expect to find God when we're all happily employed and comfortable, not when we're unemployed again and again and again. And there was no greater pain, right? And yet no greater spiritual effectiveness, no greater kingdom effectiveness than when Jesus hung on that cross at Calvary, dying for the sins of the world and then entering glory through his triumphant resurrection. And we're about to remember that now as we celebrate the Lord's Supper. But let me first pray. Would you bow with me and pray? Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you uh, that you are in control of all things and that you use all things uh, for the good of those who love you to bring about your plan and the salvation of many. Father, we thank you, Father, so much for the examples of your people throughout history, right here in Acts chapter 8 and, and throughout time as we've seen men and women who love the Lord Jesus Christ and in the midst of deep pain, you use them to grow your kingdom. Father, we praise you for that and we thank you that uh, you are in control. We pray, Lord God, uh, that, Father, uh, when we suffer, and I pray, Father, tonight for those who are suffering here, that we wouldn't feel, perhaps, that you've left us alone in our suffering, but you know full well what it means to suffer. Father, help us to find comfort and consolation in you in the midst of our great pain. And Father, we thank you that nothing is wasted in your economy, nothing's wasted in your world, and that you use even the evil, hard things for our good and the spread of your gospel. So Father, we pray that you'd give us uh, your spirit and, and, and the courage and the conviction that amidst our pain, uh, you'd use us for great spiritual effectiveness. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from City Light Church. We hope you found it helpful and we'd love for you to share this message with others. For more great content, more information about City Light Church or to donate to the work of City Light Church, visit us online at www.citylight.church.